Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. I want you to imagine with me that a person dies and stands before God. Classic situation, right? 150,000 people do it every day. They die, they stand before God. And imagine that they're standing at the gates of heaven and, and God asks them the question, Why should I let you into my heaven? And the person responds, I was a pretty good person. I tried to obey my parents growing up. I kept my room clean. I worked hard in life. I enjoyed what I did. I think it was beneficial for society. I didn't cheat on my taxes that I know of. And I... I gave back to several charities throughout my life. I I went to church. I raised my kids in church most of the time. I wasn't perfect, no, but that's just who I am. And that's their response. Something along those lines. How do you think God would respond to that answer? It's, It's honest, right? It's sincere. I would say it's also popular. When you ask most people if they're going to heaven, that's kind of the response they give them. It's the acceptable response most people think. But it's also a real concern for those who know that they don't always do as they should. We all know we're kind of on the fence there with God, and there's some crossing of the fingers there, and an answer like that. And we're going to answer that question from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16 this morning, as we see some principles by which God judges mankind. And we're going to continue uh, the Romans 1 theme of God's wrath, but this time it's going to be against self-righteousness. So we see first, your main heading there, wrath against the moralist or the self-righteous moralists. Let's look at this briefly, one through five here. It says, therefore you have no excuse, every one of you which passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge Practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness 
and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So, we're in this section of Romans that we might call the sin section of Romans. It's the bad news part of Romans. Romans is a book, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago in our introduction, it's a book about the good news, the gospel. But before you accept that good news, you need to understand the bad news. The bad news is actually what makes you seek and, and, and accept the good news. And so a man, like I think it was Dwight L. Moody said, a man doesn't seek salvation who doesn't know he's lost. You need, we need to get people lost before we get them found. And so that's what Paul is doing in this first section of Romans between Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. That's the sin section, basically, where he reveals how every man is lost and sinful and in a desperate situation before God that they cannot remedy in and of themselves. And last week, Paul raked the pagan, Gentile, non-Jewish world over the coals, didn't he? I mean, he raked them over the coals. He revealed how the Gentile world is under God's wrath of abandonment for having willfully rejected the knowledge of God through the created order of things, through the created world. And so, having done that, they're all without excuse. And now Paul, Paul starts to write to the next kind of person on his list who would look at the people in Romans 1 and say, you see those people in Romans 1? Those degenerates, well, I don't do what they do, so therefore, I'm righteous. They might not say it, the person that he's writing to, but they at least think it. And at the end of Romans 1 last week, it was probably every single one of us. We gave a hearty amen to God's judgment on the world, and then we realized, oh no, I deserve it too. Okay, so we're all hypocrites in a sense. People say, I'm not going to church because of the hypocrites. Well, join the club. You're in the church, you're a hypocrite. You're outside of the church, you're a hypocrite. To one extreme or another, you're all just hypocrites. Okay, so that's the bad news. But uh, these are people who might be well-behaved on the outside. They don't practice the impurity or the, the, the awful sins that we looked at. In Romans chapter 1, but it's still lurking. The seeds of it are still lurking on the inside. Okay? And we would call them a self-righteous moralist. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to be looking down their nose at other people. They just think that they're getting to heaven because they're good enough. Because they've done this or that, or because they haven't done this or that. And so it's all just me comparing myself to other people and how am I measuring up. So this is the person who thinks he's right before God because of his own righteousness. That's the guy we're talking about. More than likely, Paul is specifically writing to the Jew, and we're going to see that he does in verses 17 through the chapter 3, verse 8. He's going to address the Jew specifically. But he uh, could be also writing to the cultured Greek in this section, and the cultured moralistic Greek. And I think he, he might leave it open to either Greek or Jew at this point. 
when he says, oh man, he's just a hypothetical person. Whether you're a Greek or a Jew, whoever you are, he's writing to the moralist. But uh, just think about the Jews for a second. Some of the Jews thought of themselves as the righteous. We're the righteous ones who escape God's judgment simply for being Jewish. That was a common thought. That just because I'm a physical descendant of Abraham, then I'm going to escape God's judgment because he has a covenant with us. And so they looked at themselves as automatically saved, some of them. So they had a false sense of security that led them to think they could get away with some things that the Gentiles couldn't, that the rest of the people couldn't. So unlike the people in chapter 1, we also know they also didn't struggle with impurity or idolatry. And Paul connected those two in chapter 1. The Jews quit struggling with those two things outright. They might still have idols, idolatry and impure thoughts, but on the outside, they were pretty well behaved after they went to Assyria and back, or Babylon and back. The Jews, since then, have not struggled with idolatry, worshiping idols, or impurity like that. They also thought that they kept the law. The minutia of the law, actually it wasn't the law anymore, it was the oral law. and We've talked about that. They thought they were measuring up to God's standards. And Jesus had to shut them down in the Sermon on the Mount or situations like that woman that was caught in adultery. He said, you who are without sin, be the f- you cast the stone first. <laughs> nobody, nobody threw a stone because they, they realized they've all sinned. Uh, what about the story about the Pharisee and the tax collector? I thank you, God, the Pharisee said, that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Then The tax collectors were notorious for sin, being sinners, and extortion, and, and greed, and that sort of thing. Well, he's writing to that sort of person, the person who thinks he's better than someone else. And then Paul also spoke about being under obligation to preach the gospel to the Greeks and the barbarians. So to the Jews, but then you have to think, he's to reach the Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish. Basically, every social strata, from, the, from Caesar, Emperor Nero, to the lowest of the low, the homeless guy on the streets of Rome. It doesn't matter, or the barbarian, the Scythian, that basically no one knows about outside of the Greco-Roman world. So, basically everyone. The word barbarian is kind of funny. So, it comes from, if you weren't a Greek, if you weren't, you know, if you weren't up to speed on things, you didn't speak Greek, and you weren't involved in the Grecian culture, you were a barbarian. It used to mean you were just an outsider or a foreigner. But eventually it became to mean that you're, you're just an old culture, you're an uncultured person. You're not like us, you're kind of an outsider in that sense. And the, the, the Grecians actually got that name be from this thought that anyone who didn't speak Greek sounded like bar, bar, bar. That's what they were saying. You ever heard a foreign language and you're like, what in the world, bar, 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 bar? That's how they got the name barbarian. That's how they sound. Because Greek's so, you know, eloquent or something, but... You had basically the refined, educated, and philosophic Greeks who contemplated and even followed natural law like we talked about last week. Uh, one of the 
works that I've spent some time with was Aristotle's Ethics. Very moral writing, helpful for the culture. But it's still Christless immorality. Or it's still Christless morality. So they contemplated morals and natural law, but then you had the uncultured barbarians and the, the Greeks, the cultured Greeks would look down on uncultured barbarians. So maybe Paul's addressing that Grecian moralist as well as the Jews. But to make it more applicable, he's writing to all of us. And today I would think of the moralist maybe as the conservative individual who doesn't have Christ. It's the Christless morality of the day. There's a lot, this is interesting, there's a lot of conservatives and conservative organizations that I would support, and I, I, they look around, they see the world the way it is, they know it's wrong, they know that it's sin, but they don't have the gospel. And so it's really strange to look at some of these conservative organizations who understand morality is a thing, but they don't understand where it comes from. Like, God is the ultimate source of morality. And there's a lot of people today wrestling with that, isn't it? Isn't there? They see what's wrong, but they don't have the answer. They have conservative values, but they don't have Christ. And so they're really confused, and they're hypocritical because they're looking down on the world and they don't see their own sin sometimes really really easy to do he could also be talking about the christians today who forget grace because they've they've grown in their christian walk they're not who they used to be but they forget god's grace that led them to that point and so they look on others who maybe aren't as far along in their walk in christ as them or maybe who aren't walking with christ and they look down on them and they forget I am who I am by God's grace. Well, to all of these people that we're talking about, Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse either. You too have no excuse. You agree with God's judgment on the pagans. You give a hearty amen. There's nothing wrong with making judgments. You know, I'm, he's not saying you can't judge at all. He's, you know, take the log out of your own eye first before you make discernible judgments like that it's a conversation for another time but he says what about you you give a hearty amen to God's judgment but what about you are you without sin are any of you without sin moralists tend to be hypocrites that's what he's saying they're hard on others but they're soft on themselves the moralist looks at the murderer and he says, see, I don't do that. That guy's going to prison good. He deserves it. But then he looks at himself and he doesn't see that he's got the same seeds in his own heart. And it's called hatred. That's the seed of murder, Jesus said. He looks at the drug addict and says, see, I don't do that. All the while, he's addicted to food and entertainment. He's a glutton but he doesn't see that. He looks at maybe the adulterer and he says, see, I don't do that either, therefore I'm righteous. God will accept me. And all the while he goes on in life day to day without thinking that his lustful thoughts are unrighteous and deserve to be punished too. 
whether it's the deed or the thought, the secret that goes on in his heart, it deserves to be punished too. God can't just overlook that. He has to judge sin. The moralist beholds other sins, but are blind or they downplay their own. And they do that because they're just in this comparison with, him, with themselves and with others. And so they feel good about themselves when they measure themselves against others and how they're doing. He underestimates God's righteousness and overestimates his own. And so Paul says to the moralist, Do you suppose this, O man? Now, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Do you really think you're going to escape the judgment of God? And so Paul starts to argue with this, oh man, character. And it's just an imaginary, hypothetical, moralist person. And he's not, he's not losing his mind. He's just using a technique that some of the Stoic philosophers used to use called diatribe, where he'd sort of publicly reason before people, maybe in the marketplace or in the theater, and you would publicly reason before an audience with an imaginary individual. And so you kind of put words or questions in their mouth, and then you respond to those questions. And you have to think, Paul's been preaching for 20 years. He knows what questions people are going to ask, and so he's addressing that. Actually, one of the more popular Christian writings where you see diatribe with an imaginary person is Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo. It's about, uh, Trifo was a Jew. Justin Martyr invents a Jew named Trifo, and he has this writing and discussion with Trifo. Actually, Justin says he puts on his philosopher's robe, and he's walking around the colonnades, and he runs into Trifo the Jew, and he basically explains to the Jew how Christianity is, like, has replaced Judaism, and uh, he tries to win this Jew to Christianity, and unfortunately, it, it's slightly anti-Semitic, actually anti-Jewish, and, uh, but it is an apologetic from that time, about 125 AD, and it's interesting, if you, as you go throughout the centuries, one, two, third, and fourth centuries, it just grows increasingly anti-Semitic, but Paul is asking the moralist who thinks he's righteous to reason with him, like a philosopher. Reason with me, man. <laughs> oh, man. Think about it. That, actually, that word reason, that word suppose, in my translation, could be translated reason or think. It's logizomai, logic. Consider this. Consider what I'm saying. He wants the person in the audience to think, to use, ans- to use his logic in answering this very simple question. Are you really righteous? Can any of you here this morning say you're really righteous? If you think you're good enough to get to heaven by your own righteousness, let's think about that for a minute. Let's think about it. Actually, let's rethink self-righteousness, Paul says. With the, here's the first reason. That God will judge in truth and righteousness. He's going to judge according to truth, verse 2. In righteousness, verse 5. According to truth, in righteousness. Think about this. He's not, reason with me, he's not talking about a flexible form of truth like we have today. 
He's talking about truth as truth. Not incomplete truth, not hypothetical truth, not circumstantial truth. Truth as perfect truth. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows exactly what's true. At His judgment, there's not going to be any questions. There's not going to be any debate. There's not going to be any secrets that you can hide. No jury trying to decide what's true, hoping, crossing their fingers that they made the right decision. God will know perfectly and completely what is true, and He's going to judge, not in partial righteousness, but in perfect righteousness. So that means anything that's unrighteous gets wrath. Even just a unrighteous thought. It's not going to be like some of the cases today that we read about, that we hear about, where someone you know, you know they're guilty, and I could name names in our headlines this year. You know they're guilty. All the evidence is there. They had 16 indictments against them, and yet the jury paid off, lets them go. I'm just guessing they're paid off, but they let them go. That's not going to happen in God's judgment. Unrighteousness must be punished. And if it's not, God ceases who he is. He ceases to be just. Someone has to pay for that unrighteousness. The moralist who thinks he's getting to heaven because he's more righteous than others needs to remember God's wrath is against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, including all of his own unrighteous thoughts, his own unrighteous deeds, his own unrighteous words. Everybody ever, anybody here ever spoken an ill word against somebody? Without excuse, right? Every single one of us has. And so our sins, no matter how small, no matter how great, deserve wrath every deed must be answered for that's how paul describes it next god's going to judge according to our deeds verse six god will render to each person according to his deeds to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness Wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Where do you find yourself in that list? What Paul is doing here is very obvious for the most part. But it's also kind of confusing because we all know God's going to judge us according to our deeds. But for those of us who understand the gospel, we're kind of left thinking, wait a minute. Paul just said, by persevering and doing good, I can have eternal life. Didn't he just say that? I think he did. And so it raises the question, did he just blaspheme? Did he just preach a works-based gospel? And the answer is no. 
One thing you have to remember when you're reading through this passage is that Paul is addressing the unbelieving moralist, not believers. Number one, put yourself in the unbelieving moralist's shoes. We're still in the sin section of Romans. We're not in the salvation section. What Paul just said right there, is that the good news? Think about it. Is it the good news that if you just persevere in doing good, you can get to heaven? It's not, but it's true, isn't it? The only caveat is that you can't persevere in doing good. Actually, I'm going to, I am going to spoil, spoil it for us. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 10 and 12, there's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, not even one. So in theory, you can get to heaven by persevering and doing good. In practice, nobody does except one. That's what Paul's saying here. He's getting the moralist to wake up. Wake up. Realize you cannot be good enough. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how religious you are. If you don't have Christ, you don't have life or eternal life. Repentance without faith, completely worthless. Think about it. As far as attaining eternal life, repentance without faith, just telling someone to be a good person, that's reformation. They need regeneration through faith in Christ. The reality is that If we don't come to God on the basis of His grace, free gift of His grace offered to us in Christ and in His perfect righteousness, then we come, we have to come by our own works. It's either grace or works. If you don't choose grace, you come by works and you're going to be judged according to your own flawed righteousness. I can't think of anything more terrifying than standing before God on the basis of my own righteousness. I'm a pastor. I know I'm not perfect. I sinned a lot this week. I sin every day. I have qualifications, right, as a pastor, and that definitely keeps me in check. I got a short leash. But I still know I can't even control my thoughts. I can't control my dreams. My dreams are wicked. And they must be judged. Someone has to pay for those. And it's either me or it's Christ. And we have the choice. Who are you going to succeed? Who are you going to choose? You're going to choose to stand before God on your own righteousness or someone else's? The perfect one. If you reject the grace of Christ's righteousness and his sin-atoning work on the cross, God is left with no other choice but to judge you according to your works. And that is going to happen at the, what they call the great white throne judgment after the millennial kingdom, after the thousand years, at the resurrection of the unrighteous. And out come the workbooks. <laughs> Not workbooks, works books that recorded every impure thought, deed, and word. 
After that comes the eternal fire for those who failed to trust Christ. Believers, judgment, we're going to stand before the bema seat of Christ, aren't we? My understanding is that takes place before the 1,000-year millennial kingdom, according to Revelation 20. We are judged before his seat, not on the basis of salvation, that has already been decided, right? But we are judged by the works that we've done in this life. And Paul says, some of our works, God-glorifying, they're going to remain. You're going to be rewarded for them. Some of our works, they're going to burn up in the fire because they didn't glorify God, they had impure motives, that sort of thing. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 3. If anything, our works just simply reveal our true spiritual state. And just because someone does good works, you can't tell where their heart's at, right? There's a passage about that in Matthew 7. People who served God, they said, they're standing before God and they said, we did all these miracles in your name and all these works in your name. And Christ says, I never knew you. Sounds like they were depending on their works and not trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. But God will judge also without partiality. That's our next principle. Another reason to rethink standing before God on the basis of our own righteousness. He's going to judge without partiality. That means he's not going to show any favoritism. We all like to think that God just favors us, don't we? Because of our circumstances, what we've been through, this and that, right? Our environment, that's the culture's cry. My environment made me who I was. Can't dare blame it on sin. There's no special treatment at God's judgment seat. Perfect justice is blind, they say. You ever seen Lady Justice with a blindfold on? Perfect justice is blind. It's blind to rags, to riches, to bribes, to tears. It won't matter. Remember Esau? Sold his birthright for a bowl of stew and sought repentance with tears. There was no place for it. It's too late. Think of it this way. When partiality... So with teachers, some of you guys are teachers, when the test scores comes in, when the test scores come in, you can grade on a curve. So if the highest grade on the test is a 96, you can take that 96, you can make it the 100%, and then everybody else gets an extra 4%. It's confusing to me too. But that raises everybody's grade. You can grade on a curve. Well, at the final judgment, there's not going to be any curves. You're not going to be graded on a curve. There is no extra credit. You can't retake the test. There's no purgatory. He will deal with every person with what they really did. Not with what they intended to do. A lot of times we have good intentions. We don't see them through doesn't matter. What did you really do? Not what you intended to do, not what you wanted to do, not what you regretted doing. The tears didn't matter. It's what you really did. And so every 
sin of the moralist is going to be judged. Once you die, it's final. There's no changing your mind, and it's, it's, it's set in stone. It's engraved in stone. No partiality. Everyone is going to be judged and must be judged because, again, if God doesn't judge sin, he's not God anymore. He can't change. He can't overlook sin. He can't overlook sin. To do so would make him unjust. And so the result then is in verse 5, God will judge inevitably. Inevitably. The moralist who constantly falls short of God's standards is just storing up wrath for himself in the inevitable day of wrath. Did you catch that? Verse 5. Though the moralist may miss some of the consequential wrath we talked about last week, we, have, we sow and we reap. If we're not sowing wild oats, we're not going to reap the wild oats. So the moralist, by, I don't know, doing some good things, not living, you know, living a God-honoring marriage, maybe serving in the community. You know, this guy, some of these moralists, they're pretty decent people. You look around, you'd never guess they're not saved. But because he operates according to God's design in many ways, he's, he's going to miss the consequential wrath. But Paul points out here, he's still going to face the day of wrath. Eschatological wrath, the wrath, the day of the Lord, the tribulation period. He's going to experience so distress. Look at that. Tribulation and distress during the day of the Lord. Right before Jesus Christ comes and the day that he comes. And eternal wrath. So yeah, he misses out on some of the wrath here and now, but it's still coming, Paul says. I read a, a true story. It's getting pretty heavy in here. I don't know if you guys sense that. But I do, because this is the judgment passage. And I prayed God would give me more jokes, but I just didn't get them to lighten it up. But I, re- I did read a story last night. I came across this last night about the British colonial government in India. And there was a cobra problem over there that they were concerned about. So they, they decided to put a bounty on the cobras. Basically, you bring in a cobra, we give you a reward for that, kind of like coyotes in our area. Too many coyotes, shoot them. Well, here's the money for the fur. But at first, this reward program on the cobras, really it really worked. A lot of cobras were taken off the streets. A lot of them were killed. But in time, people began to take advantage of the reward program. Go figure. No one would do that, would they? They began to breed snakes and then turn them in. And when the government caught on, they said, okay, we're scrapping this program. Well, they went and let all their snakes go that they were breeding. And it just made the problem even worse than before. Well, that's exactly what the moralist is doing when he says, I'm going to clean up my life and be righteous. And the whole time, even the motives of that are just spurning the grace and kindness of God. Because in his pride, he's trying to be righteous and he's rejecting God's kindness in Christ. Does that make sense? Jesus talked about an individual cleaning up his life 
The demon leaves him. He cleans up his life. And after he cleans up his life, seven more come in and make his life even worse than before. Yeah, it's clean. But he's not saved. He doesn't have Christ. Anytime we try to operate in self-righteousness, it's just Christ rejecting pride. I don't need Christ. Imagine that. Stepping on God's grace in Christ. Just trampling on it, Hebrews says. I don't need it because I'm, I'm good enough. But let's ask, why hasn't the wrath came yet? Why hasn't this wrath came yet? Why hasn't God judged the world? Eschatologically, in a future sense. And Paul says it's because God's kindness and tolerance and patience. He's patient. He is waiting. It's not because he's lenient. He's not dismissing it. He's just waiting. He wants people to come to repentance. What does 2 Peter say? God is not wishing, wanting that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient. And so his patience is designed to stimulate repentance. A lot of people misread it as God's passivity or God's non-existence. But someday God will say, okay, today's the day. The dam's going to break and he's going to pour out his wrath. Well, at this point, some might have heard Paul speak about God's impartial judgment and said something like, well, what about those people who never heard the gospel? What about them? Have you ever had that question? What's going to happen to the people who have never heard the gospel? How can they be held accountable? And what about the Jew and the Gentile? They're two different, right? Two different revelations here. The Jews have scripture, Gentiles don't. What about the Gentile out in the jungle with no scripture? Well, Paul responds to that in verses 12 through 16. Let's read it. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. How many of you guys are really doers of the law? Has anyone ever been? For when the Gentiles who do not have the law... Do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So Paul basically says, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're going to be judged by the law that God gave you. Be it special law, the law of Moses given to the Jew, or the law of your conscience, God-given conscience, that he gives to the Gentile. You're going to be judged justly according to the revelation that you received and everybody has received enough to condemn them, as we looked at last week. Uh, God will judge according to revelation is our last principle there. 
He gave the law to Israel. That's special. That's written revelation. It was an advantage to the Jew. They knew God more fully than the Gentiles. They knew exactly where they stood with him or they should have. It was a privileged place. The Gentiles, however, they only received natural or general revelation. But, as we looked at last week, they're not off the hook either. Natural revelation, the idea that there's enough evidence in the created world for God, people to know God on a basic level, it's informing man's conscience every day, 24-7. And they're without excuse. Everyone knows our conscience is always operating. It's either accusing us or defending us in everything we do. And it can be hardened or whatever, but it's always there. And it's always operating, telling us that what we're doing was right, what we're doing is wrong. Even the indigenous tribes of the jungle know that murder and stealing and lying are wrong because they don't like it when people do that to them. So they have God's law, in a sense, the things of the law written on their conscience and their heart, and there's no escaping that. It'll accuse our conscience. The conscience is going to accuse every man of their guilt on the day when God judges the secrets of men. Jesus said, Nothing is hidden that will not become evident. Isn't that a scary thing? Nothing is hidden that will not become evident. What's said in secret in a private room somewhere is going to be proclaimed upon the housetops. Nor any secret that will not be known and come to light. Well, what, <laughs> what, what all of this means, church, is that we're all without excuse. It doesn't matter who we are. It's the, the law of our God-given conscience accuses us. The law of Moses, God's word, accuses us. And God did this so that our mouth, look at Romans 3.19, so that our mouths would be closed and all the world would become accountable to God. Basically, you can't open your mouth. You don't have an excuse. It's going to be closed on that day. I'm accountable to God. You're accountable to God. Everyone is. And like the 150,000 people who die daily in this world, we're all going to stand before him. And if he asks that question, why should I let you into heaven? Which he doesn't have to because he already knows. Which one are you going to choose? The book of Romans is about righteousness revealed. Which righteousness do you want to present before him? Your own imperfect righteousness or Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to you by grace through faith in Christ but before you circle that on your bulletin or before you choose one reason with me here (laughs) reason with Paul every word every thought every deed is going to be accounted for someone's got to pay for it you or Jesus who pays it all